Take your Bible and open to uh, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and let me read the first uh, four verses of the chapter. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Well, tonight we have that wonderful opportunity to come again to this uh, portion of Scripture uh, here in God's Word, we're here for the third time uh, in one of the greatest chapters of uh, the Bible uh, that is just rich with uh, theological truth, and that theological truth really should encourage our hearts. Our, our hearts. It's a portion of Scripture that is so uh, rich uh, doctrinally that we could spend many more times on it than we are, are actually going to end up doing. Uh, and uh, because of the richness of the text uh, and the profound doctrinal truth that contains uh, I am, as you probably have noticed, working our way through it slower rather than faster. And that's kind of my methodology because I think slower is better than faster. Slower allows you to go deeper into the truth that God has revealed for us. And the deeper that we go into the Word of God, the deeper we grow in our understanding of the great theological truths that God has left for us, the higher our praise can go up and our love for and adoration for our God who has saved us at great uh, personal costs. And thinking deep on great doctrinal truth really is an encouragement to us. Because when we think of deep, uh, uh, rich theological truths, it calls us to uh, look away from ourselves. And to look upward, look heavenward to God and to Christ. To look up and see what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. I often say it, but one of the greatest mistakes that we all make repeatedly is the fact that we all tend to be so subjective. Uh, we tend to focus on ourselves and, and, and our lives and our problems and, and our pressures and our issues. We also tend to see the tragedies that go on in the world uh, through a lens of how it affects us, which reveals even more the reality that we are very subjective in our thinking. But if we look up and we look away from ourselves, look away from the problems and the difficulties uh, that are in this world and look upward to God and to heaven where Christ is, and not only would we be much happier, but we would see the wisdom of God. We'd see the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God in his word, again, that gives us great hope in times of difficulty, and that's where doctrinal truth takes us. Because in God's wisdom, doctrinal truth is meant to encourage our hearts. Because the truth is we're the only people on the planet who understand God's word and the only people who can live lives properly during times of trials and difficulties are people who have great confidence in their God, right? And God's word is an anchor for us. It gives us steadiness. It gives us understanding as we apply God's word into our lives. It really separates us from the fallen world around us, a world that has no hope, a world that has no help apart from God and Christ. And it really is the word of God that separates us or the word of God that sanctifies us. You might remember the Lord Jesus Christ prayed in John seventeen seventeen, sanctify them in truth. And then he says, your word is truth. Sanctify them in truth. Set them apart by your truth, right? And your word is truth. That's where you find truth. And, and sanctification really is a process of becoming holy, and there's no shortcut to holiness. 
holiness is developed in our life chiefly as we understand God's word and we apply that great truth into our life on a daily basis repeatedly. Therefore, God in his kindness has given to us his word that we might believe it, that we might lay hold of it, that we might apply it into our lives, that we might become a sanctified people, again, separated from God or separated from this world unto God and then unto uh, good works for God. And again, it's only when we understand who God is and what God has done on our behalf that we can be encouraged, that we can have great hope and comfort, and most importantly, in the time in which we live, freedom from fear uh, in times of difficulties. I don't know if you've noticed, but the entire world works on fear. That's what's motivating to do people like the, like the, the stereotypical, the, the, the picture you've seen of fish underwater, right, when they're being chased by something, Whew. They go that direction, and they go that direction. It's fear. And, and that's what the masses, apart from uh, God, are implying or applying to people the pressure of fear, and people who do not know God, who do not know Christ, give into that fear. But we don't live in fear. We live in truth. We live in faith. When we understand who God is, what God has done on our behalf, we can be encouraged. We can have great hope. We can have great comfort. And we can have freedom from fear in times of difficulties. And to know the reality of God's truth and to understand the reality that God is in charge, that God is working his great plan of redemption in time, a plan that again began or set in motion in eternity past, before time, that has in time and both eternal uh, ramifications that gives us comfort and hope. So again, as we set our mind on great doctrinal truths, it really is freeing. The truth sets us free from this world system that is again energized by the devil and his demons to instill fear in the heart of the unbelieving. But to those who know the truth, we have freedom from fear because we know that God is sovereign and that understanding of who God is again draws our attention upward and Christward to heaven, again providing for us great hope and encouragement here in time as we understand again God is in control of all events in time throughout all of history. He is working all things out for his glory and he's working all things out for our good. And again, that gives us tremendous hope, tremendous encouragement. That the world, again, does not, apart from God and Christ, the world doesn't possess and can never know. Now, there's a tremendous amount of hope and a tremendous amount of encouragement, knowing that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm sorry? Thank you. I'll try it again if you weren't here last time. There's now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. And then nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, right? That's tremendous truth, right? That's Romans 8. That's what Romans 8 is all about, the beginning and the end. Uh, The whole chapter is the chapter of the glorious hope and encouragement that we have now here in time. We need to live our lives according to truth, not according to our feelings. We need to stop being worked by a godless culture and start being motivated and, and live our lives according to God's truth. So God is indeed in control of all things. God has loved us eternally in his son, through his son. And God has secured our eternal destination because of his work in and through our son that is safe and secure in Christ for those who know God through Christ as Lord and Savior. So again, Romans 8 begins with the continuation of the subject that Paul's been talking about. Uh, the subject of justification. 
Justification by faith, the assurance of salvation. Again, he was talking about it in chapter 5 and really began all the way back in chapter 1 where he declares the fact that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he begins to give the proof in the first four verses. And then throughout the remainder of the chapter, Paul is going to show how our salvation is absolutely certain and absolutely secure in Christ. So how do we know that? How do we know that salvation, our salvation is secure? How do we know that it's certain? How do we know that it's guaranteed? How do we know, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Well, we know that because of the fact that we have been delivered from the law and joined to Christ by the Holy Spirit. We know because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We know because we've become children of God. We know because as God's sons, we are destined for glory. We know because of the great intercession by the person of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And because of the purpose and the character of God and his declaration of his infinite and unchanging love. Those are the themes for why we know what we know that there's no, therefore, no condemnation. Those are the themes that Paul works out throughout the remainder of the chapter. Now, last time, we started working our way through verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to go back and do a little bit of review, and I'm going to borrow a very simple outline to lay over top of the text that will be hooks, hopefully, for your thoughts. Hooks to hang your thoughts on so that you understand a little uh, easier the passage uh, uh, before us. And there are four hooks, or four features, if you want. The reality, the reason, the route, and the result. The reality, the reason, the route, and the result. And I'll repeat them as we go through the text. But first, the reality. So the first great doctrinal truth articulated in the portion of Scripture before us, 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's reality. That's truth. There was a time when we were under condemnation because we're all born in Adam. Right? Born in Adam, we were born all under condemnation, children of wrath, even as the rest, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. And nobody escapes that reality, none of us. It's an inherited condition of all of mankind. Romans 3 and 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Again, none of us escapes the reality of sin. We're all born into this world burdened with this terrible, defiling disease that brings pain and trouble into our life, that steals joy and uh, uh, happiness from the heart, that leads to greater and greater degrees of corruption that no man can cure on his own, that overpowers us, that ultimately brings misery and time and death and eternity that leads to our bondage. That's sin, the disease of sin. Man, we're running around here worried about a virus. I'm telling you what, you are being hoodwinked. The greatest problem in this world is not the virus of the coronavirus. The greatest disease in this world is sin. And that has to be dealt with. No shot's going to get taken care of that issue, I guarantee you. It's a bait and switch. It's to take us away from the reality of how life is, to focus our, our attention on something else that is not as great of an issue as sin is. And sin brings us under condemnation. Sin brings us under the control of the prince of the power of the air, the evil one, again, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2. And we're all dominated by sin. We're all dominated by sin's corrupting influence. 
And in our fallen humanists, uh, and and, uh, dominated by this outward force of evil, again, Satan and his forces of darkness that suppress us and overpower us and lead us into further misery and further judgment and eventually into condemnation. And the entire lot of mankind is in this position, born in this world, this miserable condition that all men find themselves in because of sin's dominating power. And on top of that, we live in a world uh, that has fallen, a world that is corrupted because of sin's influence. Romans, uh, uh, verse 20 here of chapter 8 in Romans says, The creation, the entire creation, is made subject to vanity or futility. The entire creation itself is enslaved, right? The creation is cursed. That's why there's earthquakes and famines and and hurricanes and and, uh, all, all kinds of natural disasters because the whole earth groans under the strain of sin. So that's mankind in his position living in this world, right? Living in a fallen world that's overpowered. Uh, he's overpowered by his own personal corruption, overpowered by Satan, subject to all the miseries of life in a fallen world, facing condemnation, looking forward, if I can put it in that kind of vernacular, but really, apart from Christ, looking forward to hell and damnation. That's all the unbeliever has to look forward to. Pain without compassion. Judgment without mercy. Awaiting what Revelation 20, verse 14, calls the second death, which is the lake of fire. That's the lot of every man born in this world. That's the lot of every individual born into this world. But then Romans 8, 1 enters in and says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So for those who are in Christ Jesus, that, that's the very definition of what it means to have hope. That's the very definition of what it means to, have, uh, to be a Christian. They are in Christ. As I told you last time, that's a term of intimacy. That's a term of union, a term of oneness, a term that is unique only to biblical Christianity because that phraseology is never found in any other religious system in the world. No one ever says, I'm in, I'm in Buddha. Nobody ever says, I'm in Muhammad. The Bible says we're in Christ. There's that term of intimacy and union. Now, the Bible says before we came to faith in Christ, we were in Adam, but once we were repent, or once we have repented, and once we turn away from our sin, once we believe that what God has done to justify us through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we're now forever in Christ. And we bear his name, right? Christian, right? Christian. We, we bear his name. Therefore, what is true of him is true of us. He died, we died. He rose from the dead, we rose with him. He ascended into heaven at this very moment in the mind of God, according to the book of Ephesians, we're seated right next to him in heavenly places. We're intimately connected forever with Christ. When a husband and a wife, man and a woman, not related, get married, they form a bond that is an unbreakable bond in society, a bond that, that is greater than any other natural bond, that husband and wife union. Right? They are one flesh. And what's true of one is true of the other. They share everything in common. That's what's true of us in Christ. We're joined with Christ, forever connected to Christ, in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 says, By his doing, or by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This is where God has taken us from this place of absolute despair and destruction into this glorious position into his family and into Christ. Martin Luther says this, he says, It's impossible for a man to be a Christian without having Christ. And if he has Christ, he has at the same time all that is in Christ. What gives peace to the conscience is that by faith our sins are no more ours, 
but Christ upon whom God has laid them all. That on the other hand, all Christ's righteousness is ours, to whom God has given it. Christ lays his hands upon us, and we are healed. He casts his mantle upon us, and we are clothed, for he is the glorious Savior, blessed forever. That's a tremendous truth. All that belongs to Christ now belongs to us because we're in union with him. That's why Paul says there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I told you last time that word, that phraseology, no condemnation, that's reality. That is the reality. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Not one bit of condemnation. Not the slightest. The person who is in Christ has been taken out of, away from, completely outside the realm of any possible conceivable condemnation. So the Christian is finished with that realm, finished with the realm of of condemnation and judgment. He has nothing more to do with it. Condemnation is utterly impossibility, an utter impossibility for the Christian because he's now in union with Christ. Now, another word for condemnation for the man who can never come under condemnation, you might remember, because that's the whole theme of the book, uh, for those who are in Christ, is justification. We've been justified in Christ. Although guilty, declared not guilty, but righteous in Christ. All of our sins, past, present, and future, fully dealt with by God in Christ. So those who are in Christ have been delivered. Delivered from the penalty which sin required, which was death. Delivered from the penalty which sin required, which is death. Eternal uh, death and eternal condemnation, eternal loss, separation from God, estrangement from God. The Christian's finished with that realm. The Christian has been justified by faith, therefore the Christian is at peace with God. So the Christian is freed from the sin, the debt of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now what does that mean? It means there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, just in case you weren't paying attention. Right? It means what it says. It also means this. Remember I, I referenced this last time from Steve Lawson. It says, because you're in Christ, Christ himself would have to be condemned before you could be condemned. Don't you feel sorry for people you know who claim to be Christians, but they're never sure of their salvation? One day they're good, next day they're bad. One day they're up, then they're down, because they're never sure whether or not they're saved. Because they're always counting on their own righteousness, not the righteousness of the righteous one. Do not listen to the, what the words of the scripture says. There's now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lawson again says, because you're in Christ, Christ himself would have to be condemned before you could be condemned. Christ would have to be cast into eternal hell forever in order for the believer to be cast into eternal hell forever. When God says no condemnation, it is irrevocable, irreversible, declared by God to be forever. So again, there's now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's reality. True truth. How? How do we get there? What's the reason? Why is there no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus? That's verse 2. So the reason, that's the second little peg, peg if you want, to hang your thoughts on. Here's the reason, verse 2. starts out with the word for, but it really means because. Verse 2, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And we learned last time that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is just another way to describe the gospel. The spirit of life speaks to the person of the Holy Spirit. It's the person of the Holy Spirit who brings us from death spiritually to life spiritually. It's the Holy Spirit who causes us to be born again, who causes us to be regenerated, who regenerates us. It's the Holy Spirit who works in our soul through the gospel and allows us to understand it, to be the beneficiaries of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. The spirit of life. 
Before Christ, we used to be aliens. We used to be rebels. We used to be outcasts. We used to be children of wrath. We used to be dead to the things of God. We didn't understand any of those kind of things. Right? I mean, what, what did you understand the day before you got saved about truth? I can tell you what you understood. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. Dead in trespasses and sin. And then God in his kindness and his mercy sends the Holy Spirit. And I love this word. It's kind of an old English word. We don't use it very often. But he quickens our soul. He quickens our soul. He brings us to life. He enlightens our eyes that we might see the reality of our sin and our great need of uh, uh, the person of Christ. Uh, our great need before a holy God of a righteousness that we don't possess that belongs to another. The Holy Spirit comes and he convicts us of our sin and our need of Christ. How many times, if you're older, you might remember this more, but how many times did you hear the gospel and you thought, what a bunch of nonsense? And somebody shared the gospel with you again and all of a sudden, it wasn't nonsense. All of a sudden, you were quickened. You believed. Right? It's the person of the Holy Spirit that does that. The person of the Holy Spirit who convicts us, who convinces us of our need of Christ, who testifies to the glory and the majesty of the Almighty Savior, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then it's the Holy Spirit who empowers us, who takes us, again, who are dead and trespasses and sins and brings us to life. The Holy Spirit who quickens. The Holy Spirit who brings us to life in Christ. The Holy Spirit who unites us with the person of Jesus Christ and makes us one with him. Therefore, his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, becomes our righteousness. And in Christ, God justifies the ungodly. One of the great truths of the Scripture, amen? Because God's got nobody else to justify because we're all ungodly, right? God justifies the ungodly in Christ. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus are tremendous words of encouragement and tremendous words of hope. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And I told you that set you free means to be emancipated, liberated. It's in the aorist tense. That means that it happened in the past. It's a completed action. So those who are believers, genuine believers, those who are in Christ have been past tense, emancipated, or set free from another governing principle that once directed our lives. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from, here it is, from the law of sin and of death. So again, before we came to Christ, the power, the controlling power, the dominating influence in our lives over us, just like all of the unregenerate world now presently, the power that motivates them, if you will, the power that controls them, the power that controls and commands the entire world apart from Christ is the law of sin. It's the power of sin. It's total depravity, total corruption. That's what once had a hold of us. Again, that's what once had past tense power over us. Remember back into Romans chapter 7, Paul says, Romans 7 and 19, For the good that I wish I do not do, I practice the very evil I do not wish. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not wish, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. That's a picture of the power of indwelling sin, and that's the power of indwelling sin even in the life of a believer because sin is such a a dominating factor in this world. The unbeliever doesn't want to do the right thing. The unbeliever has no concept of the right thing thing is, right? Uh, Paul does, even as a believer, I practice the very evil I do not wish. He understands that sin is still a principle in his life, even as uh, a, a saved individual. But he says that law of sin which leads to death. Right? It's interesting that Paul uses the refer, uh, uh, refers to this uh, as a law because sin always demands obedience. Sin always demands obedience. Sin always demands submission. 
But Paul says, in Christ, we've been set free from that law. We've been set free from that law of sin that leads to death. In Christ, he's saying, now we're under a new governing principle, under a new governing authority, the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Again, he's saying we've been liberated. We've been set free, released from the grip, the death grip that the law of sin once had upon our entire life. That's tremendous, tremendous news. Now, remember again, at the end of chapter 7, when we went through that, I don't know if you remember, but I do. Uh, If you want, you can look, because I'm going to read through it. But at the end of chapter 7, verse 14, boy, the one thing that you would not put on that as a superscription would be happy. I mean, that was pretty discouraging stuff, if you remember. Pretty depressing. Chapter 7, verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. And no longer, so no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the wishing is present, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death. That's very intense, very discouraging, very depressing, as Paul talks about his struggle with sin. But then... From the darkness, Romans 8, 1 comes in. Right from the darkness of despair, you have the brightness of God's glorious truth. You have hope, you have help. Here's the reality again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's the reason. Because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So because you are in Christ, because of the spirit of life in Christ, because the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, at one hand, or on one hand, you used to be a slave of sin, and although sin still dwells in you, sin still dwells in our flesh, and in our unredeemed humanness, if you will, although we still do battle with the flesh, with indwelling sin, it no longer has control over you. It no longer dominates you now that you're in Christ. Sin might win a battle here or there, but sin will never win the war. And although you might not live as sinless of a life as you would like, On the other hand, in Christ, for the first time, you have the ability to do the right thing. In Christ, for the first time, you have the ability, because of the person of the Holy Spirit, to obey, to say no to sin, and to say yes to righteousness. Again, not your saying no or saying yes has uh, your standing, but again, it's a principle that Christ changes our life, and we're now new creatures in Christ because of the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. So all you could do before you came to Christ was disobey. All you could do is, is to obey that law of sin, which was dragging you down, making the corruption even greater in you. But now in Christ, liberated, for the first time you can obey because of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Because in Christ, we're all under a new governing authority, under a new governing power. Because now in Christ, we possess something that we never had before when we were in Adam. Again, not only are we now in Christ, but now... As believers, we are indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. And sin ultimately uh, will never uh, overcome the power of the Holy Spirit in our life who now dwells in us.
Why? Again, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, that's reality. That's truth. It's not a contradiction. It's the truth. Right? This is a picture of who we really are now in Christ. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Remember, we're going through chapter 6, chapter 7. I said repeatedly, you've got to start understanding what the Bible says is true, not what you feel, not what you think about it, but what the Bible says is true, and you need to start living according to the truth of the Word of God, and you need to exercise the liberty that you have in Christ. Right? If you've been freed, you've been free indeed. Right? Christ says the truth shall set you free. We've got to understand what the Word of God says and then apply that word into our own life, right? Uh, sin will ultimately never overcome the power of the Holy Spirit because we are indwelt by that person. Now, what's the, what's the worst thing, right? The law, because the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus set you free from the law of sin is death. That's the truth, okay? What's the worst thing that sin can do to a man? Kill him, right? Kill him. Kill him in time, kill him eternally. Wages of sin is death. Right? The ultimate disaster that sin can bring upon a life is death. Right? Temporal death, eternal death. Eternal death, ultimate separation from God, eternal condemnation. Back in chapter 7, verse 24, Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Again, he's thinking about sin in his life and the power of sin in his own life. And he's going, how in the world am I going to get rid of this? How, how am I going to get, uh, how am I going to have power over sin in my life? What's the answer? Verse 25 of chapter 7, thanks be to God through... Christ Jesus our Lord, Christ is always the answer. Then chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and of death. In Christ we are delivered from sin's tyranny. In Christ we're delivered from sin's dominating power. Not perfectly, I got that. There's still an ongoing process, there's still an ongoing battle with sin. But in Christ, again, for the first time, we can obey. In Christ, we can actually say no to our flesh. In Christ, we have again been delivered from the penalty of sin, which is death. Again, both temporal and eternal. Now, one day, because of sin in us, sin in this world, a fallen world, fallen body, one day sin, the wages of sin is death, unless the Lord Jesus Christ returns by way of rapture, takes us to heaven, one day these bodies are going to fail. So sin is ultimately going to defeat these physical bodies, because I tell you all the time, they're not made for long-term occupancy, right? But in Christ, not only is our sins forgiven, in Christ, guess what? We're in union with somebody who defeated death. Amen? That's tremendous truth. That's tremendous hope. Although these bodies may fail, there is somebody who's gone before us, our champion, our captain, the one whom we follow who has defeated death. And for the Christian, we don't walk into death, camp, stay there, and are doomed for eternity. I think the psalmist says we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's not a reality for the life of the believer. The bodies are going to fail. I got that. Absent from the body, what? Present with the Lord. Now, that's either truth or it's not. That's either confident reality that we can live with in time, or, or, or we ought to just fold up the books and go home and, and watch TV or something. It absolutely drives me crazy. It's not in my notes, but it drives me crazy how, how the world just despises. Now, I'll say this. The world loves Easter, but despises the resurrection. I think to myself, what a bunch of fools. 
you need somebody who has defeated death. Because death is coming for every one of us in the room. Right? I mean, you all, most of you are young. Hope it's me before you. Right? Because I'm older. But you never know. Are you ready to face death? The only way that you can be ready to face death is if you know Christ. If you're hidden in Christ. Christ has delivered us from the penalty of sin, which is death. And not only that, but in Christ we're delivered from the guilt of sin because the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There's no more penalty, no more guilt. All of our sin was placed upon Christ. Christ bore the payment in full, the penalty in full. And if you think, again, there's something that you must do or something that you can do to make your life right before God, something additional uh, you must do to pay the penalty for your sin then you're telling both God and Christ that Christ's work was not enough. Christ's work was not sufficient. When the writer of the book of Hebrews says, Hebrews 10 and 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Galatians 2.21, for if righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died needlessly. If you can do something to add to your salvation, or if you can do something to save yourself before a holy God, then Christ should have never died. But Christ did die. Why? Because there's no other way. That's reality. Christ has set us free. Again, we're going to do battle with indwelling sin, the remaining sinfulness in our flesh. Uh, but, but listen, we're never going to lose the ultimate war with sin. Because Jesus Christ is our victor. Amen? Jesus Christ is our victor. He won the battle. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Right? The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is the gospel. It's a description of the gospel. It's the good news again of what God has done in Christ. The good news of the power of the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit who's come in now and changed and transformed our lives forever, both in time and then for eternity. Because a Christ that doesn't change your life in time is not a biblical Christ. Right? Jesus said there's going to be a lot of false Christs. And the world worships a lot of false Christs. We talked about that this morning. But Jesus Christ changes and transforms your life in time. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things gone right, new things have come. Christ changes our lives forever. Now it's interesting, I think, when he says uh, this word, I've repeated it a bunch of times, but he says the law. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It's interesting if we were to look back to Romans 3.27. We won't do that, but I'll just say what it says. He would say, Paul says there in Romans 3.27, he uses the phraseology, the law of faith. Galatians 6.2 uses the, the phrase, the law of Christ. So you have the law of faith, you have the law of Christ, and now you have the law of the spirit of life. Again, all, refer, all references to the gospel. And the truth is, the gospel really is a law in a sense. Because it commands us to obey, right? Romans 10 and 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe, that's the command. Believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead, you shall be saved. John 3 and 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 36 of John 3. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. The gospel demands obedience. One commentator says this, The gospel is really a law in the sense that it commands us to obey. To believe upon Christ and you'll be saved. Law demands obedience and the consequences for rejecting the law, the consequences for violating the law, the, violating the law of the gospel is condemnation. 
because men broke the law, not just the law of Moses given by God on Sinai, the moral law, but the law of the gospel that equally demands man's obedience. So the gospel, in a sense, is not just an offer to be accepted or rejected. It's a law to be obeyed. It's a law to be obeyed as Christ is sovereign Lord to whom men must yield their obedience and allegiance as the Bible calls men over and over again to submit to the law of the gospel. Obedience brings blessing, disobedience, punishment. The law, or the, as Christ, the sovereign Lord, will judge all men who reject the law. Right? That's true. Commanded to obey, commanded to repent. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. It's not an offer to be rejected, it's a command to be obeyed. It's a tremendous amount of truth. Tremendous encouragement. Again, it's the spirit who comes and awakens our mind to the truth. It's the spirit who gives us life. Titus 3.5, we are also foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts. Pleasure, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of our God and our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. Right? It's the Holy Spirit who comes and awakens us from the dead, who makes us alive together in Christ, with Christ. It's the, it's the Spirit who quickens our soul. So again, the reality, Romans 8, 1, there's now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The reason? Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Third little peg, the route. Right? The route. How does it happen? How how does God pull it off? How how does God accomplish our justification and free us from condemnation of the law? One simple word, substitution. Substitution, verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. For what the law could not do. We've got to stop right there and ask, well, first off, what's Paul talking about here? When he uses the word law, I don't know if you've read the book of Romans, but he likes to use it a variety of different fashions. So what does he mean here? Well, here in verse 3, it's actually different than the way he used it in verse 2. In verse 2, he actually used it as a governing principle or governing power. But here in verse 3, when Paul uses that phraseology, the law, he's actually referring to the law, the moral code of God, the, the, the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. That law that God gives that must be obeyed, and the one who disobeys it faces God's punishment. So what is it that the law could not do? What is it that the law could not do? I'm going to turn around the question and ask it the other way first. What is it that the law could do? What does the law do? What does God's command do? Well, the law comes and it convicts us of sin. We went through all this when we were going through Romans chapter 7, right? Uh, the law provokes us to sin. You go, well, what does that mean? Well, you see the sign that says don't step on the grass and immediately for some reason you want to. You weren't even thinking about grass before you saw the sign that said don't step on the grass. And now because of sin in you, the law has stimulated sin, provoked you to sin. The law convicts us of sin, it provokes us to sin, and the law calls us into judgment. The law condemns us. But the one thing that the law could not do, the one thing that the law does not do, is it can't break the power of sin. It can't break sin's power over us. And the law does not give us the power to obey. The law tells us what to do, but it doesn't give us the power to do so. And again, the law can never break sin's tyranny over us. Galatians 3 and 20 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. All the law is going to do is curse you. 
because you're not able to keep it perfectly, and perfection is the standard, right? You're not able to keep it perfectly in your sinfulness in your flesh. Galatians 3.21 says, For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on the law. But there was never a law given that can impart life. All the law does is bring death because of man's failure, because of man's sinfulness, because of man's disobedience. So again, the law can provoke sin. The law can condemn a person for the sin. The law can set forth the divine, holy, righteous standards of God. And then the law shows how utterly incapable men are in and of themselves to fulfill God's standards perfectly. I mean, my goodness, thou shalt have no other gods before me. We got one. The other nine just come and keep driving the hammer deeper and deeper into our coffin. And for all those ridiculous people, say, well, I can do that, right? Have you kept God preeminent in your life every moment, every second, every nanosecond of your life, and everything you've done to honor him and to honor him only? I can go ahead and answer that question for you. The answer is none. None of us has. There's none righteous, no, not one. The law just drives the, the condemnation, the hammer of uh, God's justice deeper and deeper. Therefore, the law can never save men from sin. We got the first one that we can't keep, and again, the nine more just keep making it, piling it on. The law can never save men from its penalty. The law can never justify man. Because remember, I told you the opposite of condemnation, which the law does, brings us all under condemnation. The opposite is justification, and the law can never justify man. The law, again, can never break sin's power over us. The law makes demands of obedience, but the law shows no mercy, and the law gives no power to obey its demands. The text says, for what the law could not do, and then it says, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Now, make sure you understand what's going on here, where the weakness is. Again, God's law is holy, righteous, and good, what Paul says back in Romans 7.12. The law could never save men from their sin because it was weak through the flesh. For once, I find the NIV helpful. No offense if you use that as a primary uh, book that you read through. You probably should get a different version. Okay? For what the law was powerless to do in it, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did. That's not bad. What the law was powerless to do as it was weakened through the sinful nature God did. Again, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is righteous, holy, good, Obey the law perfectly and live. Did you know that? Sure. If you want to justify yourself before God, then just obey the law perfectly. Romans 2, 13, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now again, the problem is us. None of us perfectly keep the law because we're all corrupt in Adam. Because of indwelling sin, our flesh renders perfect obedience to God's law utterly impossible. The reason that the law could not justify us is because of the weakness of our sinful flesh, right? The weakness of sinful man, the weakness of our sinful flesh, the corruption <coughs> of our flesh. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Steve Lawson says this, weak as it was through the flesh. He says this weakness refers to the impotence of the law to enable us to do what it requires, There's nothing wrong with the law, he says. The weakness is not in its teaching because its teaching points us to the very center of God's will. The weakness was in its inability to give us the power to obey what it requires of us. The flesh, he says, refers to our own human limitation. The weakness is in us. This is why we need the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to keep the law. God intervened. 
what God did refers not only to the pardon for sin that we need, but the power that he gives us to live the life, the Christian life. God intervened and made provision for our sanctification. That's good, right? What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God intervened. God did. John MacArthur says this, The sinful corruption of the flesh made the law powerless to save. The law cannot make men righteous, but can only expose their unrighteousness and condemn them for it. The law cannot make men perfect, but could only reveal their great imperfection. As Paul explained in the synagogue, synagogue at Antioch of Pisidia, uh, through Jesus Christ, he says, Forgiveness of sins has been proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. That's in Acts 13, 38 and 39. Right? Forgiveness of sins and deliverance is through Christ. That's where it's found. For what the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh, God did. <clears throat> so again, the law demands absolute perfection. The, the law demands righteousness. The, dog, the law demands justice and utter condemnation for those who fail to carry it out in absolute perfection. So again, there's nothing wrong with the law, but everything wrong with man. Again, the scripture says there's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says there's none who does good, not even one. But again, the law demands perfection. Just one violation. Again, doesn't matter when, doesn't matter how, how small, right? Just one violation, one violation of the law at one point at any time in your life, by word, by deed, by thought. <clears throat> any kind of sin, uh, sins of omission, sins of commission. You do, do, do something that you should not have done, that, that God commanded you not to do, or you don't do something that God commanded you to do, right? Just one violation, a violation of the law at any moment makes you guilty. James 2 and 10, forever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Galatians 3 and 10, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. That's why it's utterly foolish to try to run back under the law, uh, to place yourself under the law uh, for people to think that they can keep it. Uh, that's I'm talking about professing Christians who for some reason leave evangelicalism and run back to certain uh, theological systems because they like the lights and the candles and the beads and all that kind of stuff and say, I'm going to get into the system that I think if I do these right things, th- then I'm going to be saved. And it's utter foolishness because whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at one point is guilty of all of it. That's why I always say to you, all the religious systems of the world are always trying to earn their way to heaven. If you ask somebody, uh, how, why should, uh, you ask them the question, why should God let you into heaven? They say, well, I hope at the end of my life I've done more good things than bad things. God doesn't keep that kind of category. You are already condemned. It's John chapter 3. Condemned because you've not believed. Right? We, got, we need to understand the truth. Just one stumble anywhere along the way. Because God demands perfection. Remember again, Going through Romans 7, I said the only perfection that you're going to find is the righteous person of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the righteous one. Righteousness is what the law requires. And again, you probably met people like this. We, we had one uh, a few years back, quite a, quite a few years back, but I remember him. He wasn't part of our church, but he used to come to certain activities here at the church, and he was always walking around telling people how perfect he was, that he hadn't sinned in years and years and years, and was trying to pass off this kind of sinless perfectionism. And it's absolute nonsense. Deluded. That's where he was, right? He's lost his mind. His sin was thinking that he was sinless. Right? He was going around telling everybody that he's sinless, and the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. So who am I going to believe? And people got all tied up in the knots with this guy because he talked you around in circles and circles and circles. And I said, look, I'm going to tell you this is the way it is, and if you don't like the way it is, I will call the police and have you removed from the premises. 
Oh, you can't do that. I did. I'm not listening to that nonsense, and I'm not letting our people listen to that nonsense. He would tell you, he was a he was one of these homeschool theologians, and he'd go to all the homeschool meetings, and people would tell me about him, and they would just say, "Oh, we just don't know how to answer him." I'm like, "You got to be kidding me! There's none righteous, no, not one. It's not a very difficult argument." What are we talking about? One single solitary sin at any moment, no matter when committed, no matter how small, no matter how insignificant, how insignificant it might be in your mind. One single solitary sin at any moment in your life, a sin of omission, a sin of commission, something that you did not do that you should have, something that you did that you should not have done, is sufficient enough to disqualify you from heaven and to send you to eternal condemnation. Because the law demands righteousness. The law demands perfection. The Lord God says, you shall be holy, for I'm holy. That's the standard. That's the standard, but the law can't provide you the means to achieve that. The law can't provide the means to achieve that righteousness that the law demands. Therefore, the law is unable to do for fallen man what fallen man needs. What fallen man needs is not only to have his sin forgiven. We, we camp out on that one a lot, but what fallen man really needs is to have a positive righteousness. What fallen man needs is a, is a, is a righteousness from someone who has fulfilled all righteousness. He needs a borrowed righteousness, a righteousness from someone who never sinned, someone who's like us but not like us, someone who is fully man, someone who can come and stand in our place, somebody who has been tempted in all things like we are yet without sin, someone, again, whom from whom we can borrow his perfect righteousness. And the only person that fits that bill, the only person that fits that description is he who knew no sin. Right? He who knew no sin, Second Corinthians 5. And the only one who ever knew no sin was the person of Jesus Christ. He lived his entire life and never sinned. He kept the entirety of the law of God perfectly. He was the one who said, I have not come to destroy the law, but to what? Fulfill it. To fulfill it. John chapter 8, we're going to get to it at some point. Scribes and the Pharisees are with him in the temple. The religious leaders. John 8 and 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? And you know what they said? It's exactly what they said, nothing. Silence. Which of you convicts me of sin? Silence. Peter speaking of Christ, 1 Peter 2 and 22. Peter described him like this, he who committed no sin, nor were there any deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3 and 5, you know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. We need a substitute. We need a perfect substitute. That's what man needs. And what man needs, God has provided. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So again, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Again, we need a substitute. We need the perfect, the only substitute. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. John MacArthur says of him, he says, if he had not been fully, both fully human and fully sinless, he could not have offered an acceptable sacrifice to God for the sins of the world. If Jesus himself had not been without sin, he not only could not have made sacrifice for fallen mankind, but he would have needed to have made sacrifice on his own behalf. Jesus, however, resisted every temptation of Satan and denied sin in any part of his earthly life. 
Listen to this. He says, sin was compelled to yield the supremacy in the flesh to the victor, whereby Jesus Christ became sovereign over sin and its consequences in death. That's a tremendous statement. Sin was compelled to yield the supremacy in the flesh to the victor, whereby Christ Jesus uh, became sovereign over sin and over its consequences uh, of death. He goes on and says, those who trust in Christ not only are saved from the penalty of sin, but are also able for the first time to fulfill God's righteous standards. The flesh of the believer is still weak and subject to sin, but the inner person is remade in the image of Christ and has the power through the Holy Spirit to resist and overcome sin. So again, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did in sending his own son. Again, the law could not break sin's power over us. The law could not give us the power to obey. The law could never save man from its penalty. Therefore, the law could never justify. All the law could do was condemn. And again, I'll tell you another thing that the law could never do besides save us from our sin. The law could never provide for us the righteousness we need to stand in God's presence. We need a righteousness. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, There are two aspects of our salvation. The first aspect of salvation is that we stand in need to be delivered from condemnation, from guilt, from punishment. In our experience, the second aspect of the law confronts us first. The first thing we realize is that we are guilty before God, and we want to know how we can be delivered from guilt and from punishment. But salvation does not stop there. That only gives me forgiveness and saves me from hell. I need something further. I need a positive righteousness. I cannot stand in the presence of God by means of forgiveness of sin only, I need a positive righteousness, the righteousness that the law postulates. The second element in salvation, therefore, is is that I am clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and I need that as much as I need the first. That's a tremendous statement. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, look, the law could never do any one of these, right? The law could never deliver us from the guilt of sin. The law could never justify us because it was weak through our flesh. Secondly, the law could never give us a positive righteousness, and therefore never give us the ability to stand in the presence of God. But what God has done in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's accomplished both. He has given, he's forgiven our sin, and it's just like he put on clothes. He's clothed us with the righteousness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like what the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the light is a sinful flesh, for an offering for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4 says, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So again, the righteous, holy demands of the law are met in Christ. In Christ, we have met God's perfect righteousness because we're joined to Christ. We have that perfect righteousness of God through the person of Christ, freed from condemnation, freed from the penalty of the law, forgiven uh, of our sin, justified at peace with God, given the perfect righteousness of Christ. I mean, we, these are familiar with you, but think of them from that aspect. Second Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become, here it is, the righteousness of God in him. He gives us his righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1 and 30, By his doing, by God's doing, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Romans 10, 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. And this one, for sure, uh, I know you're familiar with Philippians 3, <clears throat> verse 9, Paul says, may, may I be found in him, <clears throat> excuse me, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. I, I don't want a righteousness of my own because that's not going to help me out. 
And he debarred righteousness from the perfect one. May I be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own drive from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. We need a positive righteousness, and Christ is the only one that possesses that. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending, and says, his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, note what Paul does not say here. He didn't send his son in sinful flesh. Only in the likeness of sinful flesh. The likeness of sinful flesh refers to the incarnation, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ, uh, the fact that Christ divine took on human nature, two natures in one person, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, sinless, because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not by Adam. And Jesus enters into the human race so that he can deliver us from sin. Right? It had to be in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet without sin. For what the law could not do, because it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And then this little phrase that says, as an offering for sin. And that phrase, as an offering, is really not there in the original. It's not there in the Greek. It's added in the in the by the English translator to help us in our reading. So it really reads like this. God did what God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. That's really what it says. God the Father sent his son, Jesus Christ, in the likeness of human flesh to deal with sin. Again, not just to pardon us from sin, but to break the stranglehold, the stranglehold that sin once had on our lives, governing our lives. And through the person of Jesus Christ and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, we can now live new lives, freed lives, because we are emancipated. In Christ Jesus, we are new creations, right? Old things pass, new things have come. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin. Then it says, he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. He speaks of God the Father, who sent his Son in the likeness of human flesh to do with our sin, to become a man, and through death, through the death of the God-man Jesus Christ on the cross, he condemned sin in the flesh. So on the cross of Calvary, Christ took upon himself the penalty of death for the sin of all mankind who would believe upon him. And Robert Haldane says in response to that, and you should listen carefully, Robert Haldane, the great 19th century Scottish evangelist, wrote this in his commentary on Romans, is very good. He says, we see the Father assume the place of judgment against the Son. He condemns sin in the flesh, right? We see the Father assume the place of uh, of judgment against the Son in order to become the Father of those who are his enemies. The Father condemns the Son of his love that he may absolve the children of wrath. That's a profound statement. We see the Father assume the place of judgment against his Son in order to become the Father of those who are his enemies. The Father condemns the Son of his love that he may absolve the children of wrath. Tremendous truth. Tremendous truth. Romans 5.10 says the same thing. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 4.5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. That would, that's what God does. He justifies the ungodly. He pours out his wrath for our sin upon the son of his love. 
that he might absolve the children of wrath. That's who we are by nature and bring us into his family, forgiven and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He condemned sin in the flesh. One writer says this, Jesus literally in his own death executed sin's power. When Jesus died on the cross, he did what Genesis 3 said he would do. He put a fatal blow on the head of Satan. When he died on the cross, he literally took over the power from sin on behalf of his people. That's why the cross is so important to us. It was in the flesh of Christ that he condemned sin. Therefore, to those of us who are in Christ, to those of us who are united with Christ, the power of sin is broken, the penalty of sin is paid, and sin is destroyed in the sense that it has no hold on us any longer that it has no power over us that we must yield to. It has no claim upon us that we must pay a penalty because it's all been broken, all been broken by Christ. That's tremendous, right? God condemns sin in the flesh. Now, I got it. Sin may be still present in our flesh. It is, but it's no longer the dominating power, no longer the dominating force in our life because God condemns sin in the flesh. And he overthrew the power of sin in the life of the believer as Christ Jesus enters the human race to stand in our place, listen, to destroy sin's power, to destroy sin's penalty, and one day to destroy sin's very presence. Right? That's why Christ has come. Made me think of Wesley. He says he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the fowls clean. His blood what? Availed for me. Well, it's a lot more in the text. We haven't got to a lot more we could say, but we're out of time, so we're going to stop right there. We've still got to get through verse 4. And Lord willing, we'll do that next time we're together. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful <clears throat> for this great, rich truth. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. What? Tremendous truth that allows us to boldly approach your eternal throne. To claim the crown through Christ as our own. We stand with a hymn writer and say, Amazing love, how can it be that you, our God, should die for me? Tremendous truth about your power, your person, the holy, of, of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, in which we now find ourselves in the realm of absolutely no condemnation. We praise you for that. We're so thankful for Christ, so thankful for your mercy, so thankful for the truth. Help us to continue to always sing your praise for all that you've done for us and through us in Christ our Savior. In whose name we pray, amen.